0: stocks bonds currencies gold fixed income interest rates geopolitical affairs these are the drivers of the markets these are the drivers of your money your wealth your investment strategy welcome to magic markets i'm your host the finance ghost founder of the finance i'm joined by my good friend and co-host mohammed nalla founder of monose.com and one of the most respected macroeconomic analysts to come out of South Africa. He now lives in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets experience. This podcast is not about stock tips. It's not about financial and investment advice, so please don't construe it in that way. We are here to share our love of the markets, our passion for what's going on out there, and our insights in the hopes that it grows your knowledge and potentially helps you make better decisions with your money long term. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to the first ever episode of Magic Markets, fittingly on the eve of Friday the 13th, a great day for any ghost. And Mo, I'm going to hit Friday the 13th before you do because you are now all the way in Canada. What is the time zone difference there?
1: Hi, uh, Finance Ghost. Uh, Thanks for having me on this podcast. Really excited about what we're going to be doing together here. Time zone difference is currently seven hours. It used to be six, but about a week or two ago, uh, we went back onto daylight savings time. So it's seven hours right now. Uh, You seven hours ahead of me, uh, but still Friday the 13th and quite a a fitting day for the Finance Ghost uh, and myself to start up this podcast.
0: Absolutely. So top of mind for South Africans at the moment is the RAND. Obviously, Mo, this is something that you spent a lot of time on in your career, and the RAND is one of the most volatile currencies in the world. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it's uh, the most traded emerging market currency of them all. Well, I've certainly heard that before, and you can you can confirm that for us. But basically, whenever there's a risk on or risk off trade, you know, traders climb in or climb out of the RAND, and, and we seem to always bear the brunt of whatever's going on globally. Would you agree with that that view on the RAND?
1: I think that's quite fair. I mean... Your your listeners are obviously will have heard the term a high beta currency, and that's what the RAND is. What does that mean? I mean, if we break that down, we take out the jargon, it means that the RAND tends to behave disproportionately relative to some of the other global currency pairs out there to periods of global risk on and risk off. Uh, and what that means is that if... Uh, everything's going well with the world, and if we have a risk-on period, the RAND tends to perform really well. We get a stronger RAND as a result. If things are not going so well, if we actually see things going badly, that's when we get a risk-off event, and we tend to see the RAND sell-off. Now, this is not to say that the RAND is solely beholden to global trends alone. There are obviously local idiosyncrasies. The RAND is intrinsically linked to the types of policy actions that are taken down in South Africa, what's happening with regards to not just monetary policy, but also fiscal policy, and when you throw that whole mix together, it certainly makes for these push and pull factors. And, and it's quite interesting because from time to time, if, for example, you'd see the rand doing really well over a period of time, very often you see policymakers jumping up and down, thinking, "Hey, we've done the right thing." When in fact, if you actually break that down, you can see that there are other global factors at play, and vice versa. So a little while ago, uh, Ghost, I did this uh, analysis on the rand, and. At at that point in time, it looked as though it was a 60 40 split. And that means that about 60% of the RAND's movement is generally explained through global factors, global macro factors, and around 40% of it is actually linked to local fundamentals, local idiosyncratic risk.
0: That's incredibly interesting. I actually wanted to ask you, and I thought it might be an unfair question, if you could try and quantify how much of it is local and how much of it is global. But it sounds like you've done it before already. Uh, and it is incredibly interesting. And policymakers do like to claim a great win whenever the RAND gets stronger. And obviously, they like to blame global problems whenever the RAND gets worse. I guess that's just uh, that's just the nature of politicians and people in general. So we saw the RAND depreciate heavily uh, under lockdown conditions. I mean, it, it it touched 19 RAND. People were calling over 20 I personally wrote at the time that I felt it wasn't going to get any worse than that. I felt it was oversold and I cautioned people against, you know, taking their entire net worth and throwing it offshore at 19 bucks to the dollar. And time has luckily proven me to be correct. Um, Although at the time buying offshore equities was quite a good call, but the problem is you had to take your rands out at 19 to go and buy the crash in the U.S., uh, you know, and then as those shares come up and the RAND comes down, it kind of brings your returns back down to earth, which is a little bit depressing, but it's, it's all part of a broader investment diversification strategy, ultimately, to buy and hold those assets. But the RAND at the moment is sitting in the mid-15s. Uh, some analysts are saying it'll get better. There were analysts who were calling it a 30 RAND to the dollar by the end of next year. You know, those sort of articles were going around six, seven months ago, selling a bit of fear. Where do you think the RAND should be at the moment? What do you think is fair value? So,
1: you know, first of all, let me say that I think, you know, in our dealings, uh, Ghost, you and I, we've certainly seen that you're quite astute. And I think at 19, when you actually said this is overdone, great call there. Uh, the problem with the RAND, with the narrative on the RAND, with a lot of the analysis that you tend to see in mainstream media out there is that analysts tend to capitulate and extrapolate at the same time. And that means that when the RAND's weakening, everyone thinks it's going to head in one direction. This is, is is the end of the world. When it's strengthening, they tend to do the same thing to the downside. Uh, the reality is slightly more nuanced than that. And, and why do I say that? Uh, is that we've performed some analysis on the RAND. I've got some fair value models that I've actually unpacked on the RAND, and yes, at 19, it was looking overdone. Uh, I I recently put out a piece on my my blog, monos.com, where I look at the fair value of the RAND, and depending on which model you look at, whether it's a longer-term or a shorter-term model, the fair value on my long-term model currently comes through at around 1550 to 1580. Now, what's important to note is that longer-term models tend to embed the fact that South Africa has a differential in inflation and interest rate with the rest of the world. And depending on how wide or narrow that is, we'll actually determine the slope of the depreciation one can expect over the longer term. But let's bring it back down into investment strategy, into how people actually execute on some of these decisions, because I think that's important. And some of your early commentaries suggested that. You said that at 19, it was a great time to take some exposure to U.S. equities at their low, but it was the wrong time to take your rand exposure. And that is why I personally like to decouple those two decisions. I I look at the RAND the same way I look at any other asset class. If I'm looking at a stock, for example, I'd look at the stock, I'd perform a valuation on the stock, I'd determine what I feel to be fair value, and then based on whether it's fair value or not, we'll determine whether I buy the stock or not. And I do the same thing in a distinct manner on the currency. So when I decide that the currency is at fair value or maybe it's looking overvalued, that for me would be the time to sell the rand, maybe buy my dollar exposure assuming you're moving into dollars. And then you don't have to invest those proceeds straight away. You can sit in cash and then wait for the right opportunity in terms of the other asset classes that you're looking at investing in whether that be, you know, properties, whether that be equities, whether that be bonds. It doesn't matter. What does matter is look at each part of this investment decision tree as a separate valuation exercise. And that's the reason why right now with the RAND looking pretty much fairly valued, in fact, maybe marginally too strong in the shorter term, I think personally, uh, this would be a good time to start looking at taking some of the dollar exposure if you're feeling as though your exposure is currently underweight in that space. Uh, Do you have to rush into it? No, these these cycles tend to run uh, and, and extend a little bit further than most people do expect, so can the RAND get stronger? Yeah, sure, no problem, but we need to ask ourselves the question, Are we comfortable with our risk profile? Do we feel underexposed? And if so, maybe now's just the right time to start building up some of that offshore exposure.
0: No, that's such a great point because I think people naturally trigger happy. So they want to take a view on South Africa and they go and buy shares in Microsoft. Whereas actually, you could just move your money into dollars and just wait for another cycle for tech stocks to devalue a bit. Whatever it is you want to buy and actually turbocharge your returns by getting it right on both legs, getting it right on the RAND, and then getting it right on the equity cycle, as opposed to getting on the wrong side of at least one of them. So I think that's really, that's really strong advice um, and allows people to actually just park their money in another currency and then wait to deploy it into an asset class that they think makes sense. And in doing so, you can actually diversify your wealth away from South Africa or away from your dollars, you know, depending where you're listening to this, into other currencies and then into other assets when you feel the time is right.
1: Absolutely. And I I think it's important for every investor out there to really be introspective in this, because remember what's a strategy for me might not be the right strategy for you. So this this certainly doesn't constitute advice. What I do say though is for my risk profile, for my risk appetite and for what I envisage as my long-term strategy of diversification, I have in mind a certain idea in terms of the type of asset class mix I want. I have in mind the type of currency mix I want. And so in order to achieve that over the longer term, I'm being opportunistic. I'm waiting for the right moments. And remember, no one ever gets every single trade correct. I I know and I've lived through scenarios where in the dot-com boom, for example, you know, or bust effectively, we had everyone panicking taking their rands out at the peak and then panicking when it came back the other way and effectively then selling their dollars and buying rands when the rand had strengthened again. So getting it wrong on both legs of the trade. That's the wrong way to go about doing this. This is not a trading game. If you you want to be a trader, there are people that sit and watch this every single day, intraday. Uh, I think that's a very different mindset to if you're building a long-term portfolio, you have a long-term mindset in place. If you're an investor, you've got to learn how to be patient and the psych Of that patience is very important in keeping the end goal, the end strategy in mind.
0: Absolutely agreed. I mean, everyone's situation is different. Mine, personally, I work in South Africa, my property is in South Africa, my pension is in South Africa. So the money I do have left over for investing, I choose to move offshore as much as possible or to buy South African listed companies or funds or whatever that ultimately have offshore exposure. But that's a very personal decision, of course, definitely does not apply to. You know everyone's circumstances at the time. This latest round of rand strength. I mean, a lot of it is dollar weakness, isn't it? Off the back of you know a Biden win, still to be confirmed by the courts. Who knows how that pans out? But you know a lot of this. A lot of this is actually dollar, isn't it? It's not so much what's going on with the rand.
1: I'm glad you bring that up because you know I'm, I'm sitting in Canada at the moment and if, if we look at it you know the Canadian dollar to the rand for example hasn't moved as much and the reason for that is because it's the us dollar that's been quite weak so you've hit the nail on the head uh, whether I would attribute that to a biden win or whether I would attribute that to the fact that the u.s Federal Reserve is out there with with massive amounts of of of, of, of quantitative easing of stimulus that is coming to the system which effectively debases the dollar in the longer term uh you know that is question I certainly think that the the liquidity injection we've seen from the central banks, the potential for for U.S. debt, government debt to be monetized in the attempt to try and create inflation. And I know this is starting to get a little bit higher level, but I think we can attribute a lot of the dollar weakness to some of those trends. And we can unpack that in in future shows. Uh, The question mark for me is, are we seeing a structural change in the path of the U.S. dollar? Uh, and, and the long and short of it is I don't have the answer to that yet. For For many years and probably up until I would say the latter part of last year, I was a structural dollar bull. I believe that the U.S. dollar was on a strengthening path. But the fact of the matter is we're in a very different world in 2020 than we were in 2019. And I think the massive stimulus measures we've seen to try and combat uh, COVID-19 and the crisis that has culminated from that has changed the game a fair amount whether these become uh, structural changes or if they're just cyclical and pass you know once a vaccine comes into play and so forth we still need to see so for now yes the dollar index or the US dollar by extension is a lot weaker than it has been for 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 several months in fact probably uh, over a multi year basis uh, we just need to see if that trend is sustained if it is that could be good news for people that are sitting in emerging markets uh, and potentially don't have the kind of dollar exposure they'd like to have, because what it means is that it may give you a better entry point at some point in time in the future. But let's not forget, when you break it down to the economic fundamentals of the respective market you're looking at, in this case, South Africa, There you have to look at issues like what's happening with the deficits, what's happening with the debt, what's happening with growth. And unfortunately, on a lot of those things, barring monetary policy, which in South Africa has been remarkably responsible, we've got a credible South African Reserve Bank in play there. I think barring that, the rest of the macro mix for South Africa just doesn't look quite as rosy.
0: Absolutely agreed. And debt to GDP is something people talk about here all the time. And this overall fear of going through 100% debt to GDP, you know, if you take into account a lot of the SOE guarantees, we're kind of there already. People mistakenly think that GDP is what a country is worth, uh, you know, in total, like a valuation. And so they think a debt above GDP means we're basically insolvent. Now, that's just not true, because GDP is basically what we produce in a given year. It's not the value of South Africa. But the reality is that we do have a debt problem. There's no question about it. It's getting worse it's going to call for a lot of cuts in government spending, and that comes with its own political minefield of note. But of course, it's not just us who have laid on all this debt uh, this year as part of stimulus plans. In fact, if you look at the UK, if you look at America's stimulus plans, you know this can only ever be paid for with debt, essentially. And the difference in those countries, certainly as I've understood it, is in South Africa during lockdown, there were people who simply were not allowed to work And they got essentially no government assistance outside of some basic programs to help companies and TERS programs administered by the UIF and the like, which have not exactly been hugely effective and have been fraught with, you know, allegations of issues, I suppose. Um, Outside of that, people were just forced to stay at home and not necessarily earn an income. I saw an FNB report that estimated that 2 million South Africans who were earning salaries did not earn that salary in April. That's an absolutely frightening number of people when you consider how thin the tax base actually is in a sort of South African context. Overseas, the government made people stay at home, but my understanding is that things like the furlough scheme, you know, it, it actually took money from government and put it in the pockets of citizens who were not able to work. So they were made to stay home for their own health ultimately and to stop the health system collapsing in those countries, but they were not forced into losing their homes, losing their livelihoods, the horror stories that we've heard in South Africa. I mean, is that an accurate assessment of what's happened overseas? And is it true that these offshore governments have therefore also had to take on a lot of debt to actually make that happen?
1: So I'll answer the last part of your question first yes, they've all taken on a significant amount of debt in order to make these stimulus programs happen. In fact, if you look at Canada specifically, Canada has probably been one of the outliers there in that it's probably one of the most aggressive countries in the world in terms of the amount of money that they have spent in terms of COVID relief efforts. Now, that's all well and good in terms of keeping people in their homes, but bear in mind, as you've indicated, that becomes debt which transfers onto the sovereign balance sheet and at some point in time, that's going to have to be recouped through taxation. So it's, it's, not so, it's, it's, it's very much in that you, you pay someone today, but over the longer term, Someone else is going to have to be paying for it now. the big distinct factor, I guess, between a developed country, like for example, and here I would use the United States as as the prime example, is that they can go out, they can spend this money and effectively print it from the u s treasury. The Fed can monetize that for one key reason, and that key reason is that the u s has the exorbitant privilege of being the issuer of the world's reserve currency. And for as long as that exists, there is underlying demand for the US dollar, which keeps it underpinned, and that allows them to effectively write out these blank checks. Uh, if, for as long as that persists, it means that, technically speaking, a debt to GDP well in excess of 100% in the US wouldn't necessarily be a problem. Now, if we take that and we bring it back to an economy like South Africa, it boils down to what does demand for South African rand look like? Now, I don't have to tell you the rand is certainly not a reserve currency. We were just talking earlier on the segment about the fact that people want to diversify out of rand if they're sitting in rand. And that comes with an interesting quirk in that the South African Reserve Bank and by extension South African government is unable to have the same powers as the likes of a US Federal Reserve, for example, simply because they don't have the exorbitant privilege. Uh, Is debt to GDP in and of itself a massive problem? No. Uh, We've seen economies, for example, like Japan with debt to GDP well north of 100, in fact, probably 200 percent of GDP for extended periods of time. But what it does mean is, what is your ability to service that debt? What does it look like over the longer term? And as you indicated, the tax base in South Africa is rather narrow. We've got a, a small pool of taxpayers. They're being taxed quite aggressively. And I'd like to leverage onto the, the Warren Buffett quote here, which says, When the tide go it's only when the tide goes out that you realize who's been swimming naked. The problem in South Africa is we've deferred making the hard choices, the structural reforms required during the good times. And now that it's the bad times, it just means that you're in that much worse of a position. Uh, So That's the status quo as it stands right now. I think governments around the world, heavily indebted, uh, whether the bond market can tolerate that or not, already you're seeing the longer end of the US yield curve starting to kick up. What does that mean for our listener who's not familiar with that? Is it's telling you that investors are saying if government's gonna keep printing money, the cost of that money certainly over the longer term is going to have to increase. And that's what you're starting to see creep up, albeit in a marginal sense in the US, the signs are certainly there.
0: Swimming naked indeed definitely feels like what we've been doing as a country, unfortunately. I mean, this will never be a political show, but it's it's interesting to think about a world where, you know, how much could we have done while the times were good? Because the problem is that unions just jump on the bandwagon. It becomes politically incredibly unpopular to take those hard decisions when it's not necessarily obvious why, as opposed to now the situation we find ourselves in where there's actually just no choice. So perhaps the court of public opinion then looks at the ruling party and says, "Okay, well now we literally have no choice. It's one of those things. As opposed to doing it in the good times, and uh, politically it just becomes incredibly difficult. So that's the challenge of trying to run South Africa, as opposed to trying to run a listed company. I suppose is is governments just got so many things to think about, over and above what a CEO of a company, you know, might need to might need to deal with." There's one point from earlier on that I just want to to touch on before we wrap this up on the round, and that's the inflation differential. So my understanding is that South Africa's inflation rate is typically higher than you would see in the US. I mean, the Reserve Bank targets, what is it, 3 to 6% basically, and they sort of adjust interest rates to make sure we stay within that bound. The US is typically lower than that, and as a result, over time, economic theory dictates that the Rand should depreciate against the dollar at a rate that reflects the inflation differential between the two countries. Is that broadly correct?
1: Uh, that's spot on. I mean, it, it's, it, there's both an inflation differential that one has to look at, and then there's also an interest rate differential. Uh, and effectively, the theory is, is the same is that the gap between, for example, US inflation and South African inflation, or the gap between U.S. rates, let's say, on the U.S. 10-year versus rates on the South African 10-year. And over time, your currency should depreciate in order to keep those the purchasing power of those two respective currencies equivalent. Uh, so that that's absolutely spot on.
0: So I think to wrap this one up, I think we both agree that you know the RAND was oversold at 19. It's kind of come back into the mid-15s as the world has gotten excited again and the risk on trade has come through. You know, from here, will it get better? (laughs) Who knows? If it does, probably not by a huge amount. Uh, Will it get worse? Well, over time, economic theory says that theoretically it should. So you'd be a brave person to bet against that long term. And I think one of the other really interesting points that came out of the show was that you need to decouple the equities or asset allocation decision from when you make a move on the currency. It's important to look at the currency as a standalone and say, look, should my cash be sitting in rand? Should it be sitting in dollars, euros, pounds, whatever it's going to be? and from there make an asset allocation decision. This has been the inaugural show of Magic Markets with your host, The Finance Ghost and Mo Knows. We hope you've enjoyed it and we look forward to many more. Mo, thank you. Thank you. Remember to visit thefinanceghost.com and moknows.com for more detailed insights from both of us on the topics that we are most passionate about. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing you have heard here should be taken as personal financial or investment advice. Speak to your financial advisor, do your own research, make your own decisions and good luck. This has been an episode of Magic Markets with your host, The Finance Ghost and Mohamed Nalla.